analyzing more issues and ideas for reshaping our civilization for beneficial outcomes. In this section, I'm examining some more perspectives on some of the main civilization issues and highlighting some further ideas to help reshape our civilization for the better. All of humanity today constitutes a single civilization. We may have conflicts, but every civilization and family does too. Globally, we understand the basics of politics, economics, and science in the same way. We may argue what the right way is, but we are all a part of the same conversation. In this way, we know some of the key problems that we face together, such as nuclear war, climate change, and technological disruption, the last of which is the most mysterious threat, and thus seems the most threatening because of its uncertainty. One is the rise of the global useless class, and one is the collapse of liberal democracy. We have a third issue to consider, and that is, if we do not do something about this, considering that evolution is based on survival of the most adaptive, could humankind split? Those who are adaptive will survive and be the humans of the future, a new species altogether, and everyone else will go in a different direction? Both Yuval Harari and Thomas Friedman draw our attention to the problems and challenges we face so that we can now do something about it. What will be in their place? How can we direct it? On the other hand, there's real skepticism about the pace of development. While some see this as moving too fast to catch a breath, others call it the era of stagnation. Eric Weinstein and Peter Thiel talked about the era of stagnation as starting from the 1970s except for the world of bits and Silicon Valley. We have been exceptionally slow in terms of the atom and we should be far further than we should be. There are various dimensions where we could be advancing but we have chosen not to. There is simply too much knowledge for us to be able to understand all of it and bring it all together. Research is highly specialized, and specialization makes it harder to get a handle on all the other areas of research that could be quite important to move forward in our own research. We have had great expectations of growth, and we are not living up to them. Peter Thiel and Eric Weinstein feel that we are not being honest about our actual rate of growth, or about the stability or positivity of organizations and institutions. All the things we have been waiting for are further away than we expected, and the startup momentum is falling. Is it important to understand what is real and what is not, and what has been oversold? If we are considering our actual landscape, then we should actually know what we are dealing with. The idea of a college equivalency degree is posed as something that should be enough to prove that we have the knowledge to perform a task. Certain kinds of knowledge have become so prestigious and exclusive without much meaning or even practical value. Eric Weinstein also discusses a further complication of ideas being suppressed by protecting academic, media, economic, government and other institutions from individuals or groups of people who might have valid and reasonable ideas that do not fit into mainstream institutional narratives and possibly highly disruptive to an institutional order. He refers to this as a distributed idea suppression complex, DISC, which consists of a decentralized and distributed collection of different emergent structures that not only suppresses ideas, but has led to the lack of meaningful progress in some areas, significant income inequality, and social unrest. The democratization of AI, smart technology, science, and knowledge in general can help to address some of these problems. 
AI-driven solutions can, for example, help us with collective sense-making, having smarter information filters, being open to other ideas and opinions, and offer excellent education to everyone without the burden of debt and without geographic restrictions. Peter Thiel, as a contrarian, believes that we should also be worried about the lack of automation. With more automation, we can get 3-4% GDP growth, and with that, solve social problems. This is therefore something government should be seriously investing in. The global economy is not as we would like to believe it is. It is in crisis. As much as we might like to keep focusing our attention on more easily fixable smaller matters, we can no longer ignore the common denominator that sustains and deteriorates our current state. We have almost exhausted our natural resources. Productivity is declining. Growth is slow. Unemployment is rising and inequality is deepening. We need to consider the efficacy and sustainability of our current economic models and find more stable social and economic solutions. Social and economic theorist Jeremy Rifkin suggests a new economic system, the radical new sharing economy. Rifkin argues that with climate change ravaging the planet at devastating speeds, we need to act fast. Change of this magnitude requires political will and a profound ideological shift. Frightening as this may sound, Rifkin is not wrong. His solution is, however, just one solution in a sea of many. In short, the radical new sharing economy proposes a decentralized global system that relies on the convergence of three technologies ultra-fast 5G communication internet, renewable energy internet, and driverless mobility internet, all connected through IoT and embedded across society and the environment. When we evaluate well-being on an aggregate level, welfare economics, we are looking to describe and predict what affects levels of well-being. Of course, we are interested in how technology adoption will affect our well-being and the implications that it might have on economics and society. Fear is of course detrimental to well-being, and fear is also rather prominent in the age of acceleration, smart technology, globalization, automation, and any other name we want to give it. It is all part of the smart technology era. With regards to economic growth and the current state of capitalism, Yuval Harari points out that the credo of more stuff urges individuals, firms, and governments to disregard anything that might hamper economic growth, such as preserving social equality, ensuring ecological harmony, and honoring one's parents. On the other hand, capitalism encourages people to stop seeing the world in a way where someone else's profit is our loss, and instead see it as a win-win situation in which your profit is also my profit, something that contributes to the global harmony. An important question to ask is if our current capitalism is working for us. The answer seems obviously no. Rising inequalities in means, access, knowledge, basic rights, and knowledge makes it somewhat obvious that our current state is not working for us. So what can a future look like that promotes fairness for all? We need to reimagine and reinvent capitalism something already working well for some, but to find a way to make it work better for everyone. The wealth gap, accompanied by an opportunity gap and values gap, made more obvious by globalization, means that our current social, economic and political systems cannot go on for much longer. In this, the highest priority is addressing the state of the average worker and those who are not lucky enough to be considered the average worker. 
We perceive that we live in a capitalist society, but capitalism is by nature, whilst maybe just in theory, competitive, where people are competing in the same society, all of whom have the right and opportunity to participate and contribute to the economy. But this competitive capitalism, which was the dream capitalism was based on, does not exist. Our market in modern time, even more so in the 21st century, is a market of monopolies. Up until the 1970s, the middle class has been growing and benefiting from capitalism in their ability to compete in the market with as little as a high school education to buy cars and homes and live relatively fruitful lives. We saw capitalism collapse for the first time in 1929. From there, fascism, Nazism, communism, war and social unrest rose. The same thing happened in 2008 after capitalism had rebuilt in post-war years. We are still seeing the effects of that, with more and more people being sidelined from the economy that the 1970s allowed them to be part of. What we need now is an alternative to capitalism. One that is intentional, lasting and aims to solve a common solution to a common problem. To do this, we need to build hope in place of populist reactions that rise in defiance to the current states of most people. Economist, academic, philosopher and politician, Yanis Varoufakis believes that we are not going to build a world worth having by building wars and buying weapons. In fact, we must be committed to minimize human suffering. If that means reinventing capitalism or finding an alternative, then these are the solutions we must explore. The proposed DIEM25 aims to remove borders for an inclusive Europe. The borders that the EU defines should not matter because the movement exists to not be defined or confined by any reigning social, political or economic foundations, rules or policies which are simply not working for most people. Let us take a brief look at what the DIEM25 is, why it was founded and what it aims to achieve. Commonly described as a Star Trek world where a type of communism, not the communism you know, so please ignore whatever feelings this ignites, reigns outside of the hands of the state and within the hands of people. Deem 25 promotes the ability of each person to own a percentage in the shares of organizations whose current riches are part of the growing inequality and unrest in the rest of the world but are simultaneously tied into the very people being economically left behind for their income and success. It is simply impossible to keep up. Sounds complicated? Let us use Verifakis example of Google. The more people who use Google, or any other application for that matter, the more valuable it becomes. The more data it has, the more people use it, and the more people are projected to use it. Each new user means more money today and more projected money for the future. This is known as Metcalfe's Law, which states that the value or utility of a network is proportional to the number of users of the network. The Dean 25s new liberalist view or reimagined capitalism says that because Google is so reliant on the average citizen to create value, the average citizen is entitled to a share of the business that his, her use of the product affects the value. Google Maps relies on each citizen's use of Google on a mobile phone to know how full the roads are and then advise other routes. This is just one example of the top technology company's value being heavily reliant on its users. The point is that some of the richest companies in the world are only rich because of either how many people use them 
or the data that they can generate to give their product use and in turn value. Bear in mind, this is not just today's value that we are talking about, but according to Metcalfe's law, if the number of network users is at 100,000, merely adding one more user follows that 100 more users are to come. The more users there are, the more value the network has, and then the more money it has. So each user's value to Google, Facebook, Instagram, WhatsApp, Microsoft, IBM, etc. is worth a lot more to the companies than one more user. What this means for Facebook, who owns Instagram and WhatsApp, is every time they have one new user, they have the potential to make millions, if not billions more. Here lies the very core of DIM25. Since we are all integral parts of not only the usefulness, but the value and capital growth of these organizations, we are really more like employees than users. We are not just using the products. Our data is adding usefulness and value to other people and to the organizations themselves. Thus, we should be remunerated like employees with shares in their profits. As there are simply not enough jobs, and even more so with globalization, AI-driven applications can help ensure that every person has an income that allows them to meaningfully take care of themselves and their families. Relying on the state of tax money to support the most extremely excluded and downtrodden is simply not working, especially since these numbers are growing every day. We need to consider other systems and states of being that aim to eradicate human suffering while still promoting innovation, inclusion and contribution to society and the economy. What would we say of citizens, mostly situated in Africa and Asia, who do not have access to a smartphone or any other personal technology and are not participating in the digital economy, digital data and involved in the profits of the reigning technologies? This goes to our previous argument for using smart technology to leapfrog socio-economic inclusion and generally include more people in the information revolution and globalization. Access to the internet and a smartphone is vital to being able to access basic services such as doctor's consultation, medication, products, food knowledge and education, formal and informal. As a starting point, through ensuring each citizen not only has access to affordable or free smartphones and internet, but is educated in the use of these devices and how they may access the items mentioned above, we are including everyone on the globe in the benefits and new ways technology can improve our lives. We would also need to ensure that the services promised on the other ends of our smartphones exist. For example, we use drone technology and GPS tracking to deliver the necessary medicine to a person who has had a virtual appointment or even an AI-powered doctor's appointment received a diagnosis in cases where hospital or in-person escalation has not been recommended and received a prescription for, say, cholera medication. Services such as these are far more beneficial for residents of remote villages than they are for city dwellers, as they are far more beneficial for those without access to private healthcare than those with access. They remove the need for a long walk and two or three forms of public transport, if there is access to this, just to get to see a doctor. Once they arrive at the clinic, there is no guarantee that they will even get to a doctor that day. If they do manage to see a doctor approximately 5 hours after arrival, there is no guarantee that the medicine they need will be in stock. 
If it's not, they may ask to return in a week, another long trip with still no guarantee that they will receive the medicine they need. This speaks to the importance of access to smart technology for basic services. Now, let us speak to access to the rewards for participating in and contributing to the digital ecosystem, as an employee would. If we treat each person who contributes to the use and value of a platform as an employee, then we seem to have begun to solve the problem of economic exclusion, fear of jobs loss and replacement, and an inability to enter the job market in the first place. In a Quartz article about fixing capitalism, they mention that capitalism is not an organic system, markets are not forces of nature, and companies don't have minds of their own, and see all of them as collections of human decisions, rules, incentives, predictions, and unintended consequences, and that we can make changes to them if we want to. There has also been for many years a major debate about traditional shareholder capitalism that primarily focuses on unlocking shareholder value and stakeholder capitalism that consider all the stakeholders of a company, including the owners, provide long-term value, clarity and effective engagement, customers deliver value to them, employees investing in them, suppliers treating them in a just and ethical way, and communities respecting the people and safeguarding the environment through sustainable activities. Ray Dalio, co-founder of the world's largest hedge fund, Bridgewater Associates, recently claimed that Chinese state capitalism and development of capital markets is advancing, whilst US capitalism needs urgent repair. Having visited China on a regular basis over the past 35 years, he has seen per capita incomes increasing by 30 times then producing significant more computer engineers and science, technology, engineering and mathematics graduates, and estimates that 40% of the new initial public offerings will be done by Chinese companies on Chinese exchanges with institutional investors to follow. Ray is still a big believer in capitalism, as he says that his exposure to most economic systems in most countries over many years taught me that the ability to make money, save it and put it into capital, i.e. capitalism, is the most effective motivator of people and allocator of resources to raise people's living standards. However, he is very concerned that capitalism is not working well for the majority of people in the United States, as the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer, with the middle class being hollowed out, which in turn creates a wider wealth gap that is damaging for the US and can lead to major conflicts and even revolution. He reckons that to solve this would require expert re-engineering of the economic system, but the problem is that capitalists typically don't know how to divide the pie well, and socialists typically don't know how to grow it well. In a LinkedIn article, he describes in detail why and how capitalism needs to be reformed, why he believes that capitalism is not working well for the majority of people, his diagnosis of the problem, and what should be done. He shows that real income growth for most people was stagnant for decades. The income gap is at its highest. The wealth gap is at its highest since the latter part of the 1930s, and most people in the bottom 60% are poor. As there is a causal effect of where personal development impacts productivity growth, which in turn impacts income growth, Ray points straight to the poorly educated children within poor families with weak support and poorly funded schools as a major culprit. He shows that the US scores low on an educational level, with being bottom 15 percentile of the developed world. 
Many students have emotional problems and are not sufficiently prepared for work, which in turn leads to poor health and social consequences, economic costs, and even higher crime rates. The result is a growing gap with respect to opportunity, income, and wealth, which in turn leads to hazardous social and political polarization. His diagnosis of why capitalism is not working for the majority of people in the U.S., boils down to companies that are chasing profit and greater efficiencies by replacing U.S. workers with technology and cost-effective foreign workers, making good healthcare and education more expensive and even unaffordable for the majority. The rich getting richer because of increasing prices of financial assets that they own and their tendency to purchase financial assets as opposed to goods and services with the poor left less creditworthy and the focus on policy makers on budgets as opposed to returns on investments. To fix this, he recommends that we need to make changes to capitalism that enable more equal opportunities and increase productivity. It all starts with governmental leadership that needs to treat the income, wealth and opportunity gap as a national emergency. Ray would like to see bipartisan and skilled policy workers collaborating to redesign and re-engineer the economic system to raise money and spend or invest it well to produce excellent double bottom line returns with unambiguous metrics to determine success. He would also like to see that monetary and fiscal policies are better coordinated to stimulate economic growth and lessen the effects that quantitative easing to increase the money supply to increase lending and controlling inflation has on increasing the wealth gap. Ray also reckons that the redistribution of resources will improve most people's well-being and productivity through creating private-public partnerships that invest in double-bottom-line projects that would have measurable economic and social performance results, raising money to improve economic productivity and conditions by taking into account all-in societal costs, and raising more from the wealthy via taxes that would be engineered to not have productivity disrupted and being set aside to those in need to improve the economy's overall level of productivity in a paid-for manner. In radical markets, uprooting capitalism and democracy for a just society, Eric Posner and Glenn Will present market-based ideas that can help reshape the markets and society with greater equality and reciprocity and address the crisis of the liberal order, which entails the inequality within wealthy countries, the drop in economic and productivity growth rates, which causes economic stagnation, the decline in employment, and the struggle of democracies to handle conflicts between minorities and majorities within countries. In response to this crisis, they propose ideas for transforming the economy that involves owners to set property taxes with the option of others to buy your assets at your assessed value, the ability to weigh or buy votes in a more radical democracy, immigrant sponsorship of visas, and sharing of the gains from migration, diversifying the owners of stocks, and giving consumers data ownership. In order to address the problem of land ownership type of monopoly power, prohibiting progress and having low allocation efficiency, they propose a new property system called the Common Ownership Self-Assessed Tax cost, to create a competitive market in users through partial common ownership where every citizen and business entity would self-assess the value of assets they possess pay a certain percentage tax on these values and be obliged to sell the assets to anyone that is willing to purchase them at the price that they have assessed.
Eric and Glenn reckon that cost would raise sufficient income to eliminate other taxes on capital, reduce income taxes, finance a large social dividend, sponsor the development of critical public infrastructure, help grow the economy, increase the value of commonwealth, govern public resources more efficiently, encourage people to have a healthier relationship with assets, and help to forge stronger community bonding. They also envisage a more radical democracy where a proposed quadratic voting QV system will help to facilitate reasoned compromises among citizens, trade influence on issues that people feel less strongly about with others that are more important, help protect treasured interests of minorities, and help to optimize decision-making to benefit all. In this QV system, every citizen would receive an equal annual allocation of vote credits that can be used to vote in a range of collective decisions with a choice in how many votes are allocated to specific issues where the cost of votes are quadratic in the number of votes acquired. By having citizens voting in proportion to how important issues are to them, this type of voting system could result in optimized social decisions. They also put forward a Visas Between Individuals Program, VIP, that would bind the interest of the laboring class people of poor and wealthy countries through visas being sponsored and the earnings from migration being shared. The benefits include, for example, to help grow middle class income and reduce inequalities across countries. According to them, much of the economy is being coordinated by institutional investors that mainly serve the interests of the wealthy through their control of most public companies, whilst labor wages are kept low through artificial unemployment. A solution can be to change the structure of corporate ownership that will, for example, not allow investors to hold substantial shares in multiple market leaders within the same market segment, as well as enforce antitrust laws that would prevent mergers that lead to the lowering of worker wages and corporations to acquire disruptive startups that might become strong competition in the future. To democratize the benefits of the digital technology that makes use of citizens' data and address the problem of technology companies exploiting this data for their own profits in lieu of free or cost-effective services that they provide, Eric and Glenn proposes a data-as-labor solution that would reward people for their data or digital contributions. This idea also ties in with one of the AI-driven solutions that will be discussed in the next chapter. Their analysis of radical markets unveils how these ideas can be mutually reinforcing as they present a common vision to how these ideas about economy, society, international matters and political systems can be integrated. Their perspective of market power having a foundational role in the economy without there being an assumed trade-off between productivity and employment is contrasted with both the techno-optimistic view of smart technology boosting productivity growth but causing social tension with respect to employment decline and the techno-pessimistic viewpoint that argues that productivity and economic growth will continue to dwindle. They think that costs will improve economic efficiency through minimizing monopoly power, whereas QV will enhance the positive effects and ensure that public goods exhibit citizens' overall preferences. Both Dell and VIP will in their view grow labor markets also within the digital space and help to reduce unemployment. 
They also consider the possible extension of cost to include human capital, where people can self-assess the value of their time, pay a tax on that value, and be ready to do a job or tasks for a company that can pay for their services. Although there are problems to work out with this solution, it can also address the problem of some top-performing people demanding monopoly prices for their services. On the political front, both cost and QV would have a transformative impact by not only giving citizens a share of the national wealth, but also have them pay more attention to the repercussions of policies that affect the national wealth and increase responsiveness to public demands. VIP will help to address conflicting issues with respect to globalization and migration, which is also contributing to populist drives, as well as enable better international cooperation to help to manage cross-border activity-related conflicts. QV can also be applied on an international governance front to help with improved collaboration between smaller, poorer and wealthier countries. In general, radical markets driven by these types of solutions should help strengthen social tolerance, reduce social tensions with respect to exploitation, enhance mutually favorable economics and tear down wealth and economic-related entitlements. Although the proposed ideas are thought-provoking as we contemplate a beneficial future and improved economic order for humanity in the smart technology era, there are also some critiques such as that the moral economy has not necessarily been replaced by a market economy, but embeds the market economy which implies that we also need to consider how human institutions constrain markets and the interactions with moral planned economies. Furthermore, as life is much more than a market, there are also many other perspectives in how to uproot inequality and build a just society, such as the one by philosopher Michael Sandel that discusses shaping our society by true principles of justice and not on a notion of merit, in the tyranny of merit, what becomes of the common good. He explores how meritocratic arrogance leads many to believe their success is fully attributed to their own activities and is their own doing and disregard others that are not successful, which leads to discontent and incite the divide between winners and losers in the new economy. Michael is advocating for a less bitter, more magnanimous civic life that redefines the meaning of success and recognizes the role of luck which also include talent, culture, and capacity for hard work. He frames his view as meritocracy in the context of Friedrich Hayek's economic liberalism and John Rawls' egalitarian liberalism. Whereas with economic liberalism, societal merit is separate from economic success, which measures how well people function in the market system and redistribution of these gains on a basis of merit by government is unacceptable. Egalitarian liberalism is a school of thought where the disconnect between economic success and merit or justice requires redistribution of the economic gains on a basis of societal merit where the gains that emanate to the lucky and talented people are redistributed to the less lucky or talented individuals. The difference between these two perspectives and meritocracy is that the latter join together economic success with moral desert. Michael Sandel thinks that economic market success can mainly be attributed to luck in various forms that are not fully under our control, such as talent, culture, and also the capacity for hard work. 
The fundamental problem in our society is that economic and professional success is interpreted as just and a measure of a person's moral value and what they deserve. Although meritocracy has replaced aristocracy, it differs from aristocracy also with respect to judgment on someone's moral worth, whereas the riches of an aristocracy are seen as a function of the luck of their birth, separate to judging a person's worth. In a meritocracy, one's status is explicitly used to measure one's value as a human. He also points out society's asymmetrical focus on educational fulfillment as severely judging people that do not thrive in that system and driving the successful parents to replicate their meritocratic ascendancy for their children. Max Borders shows in The Social Singularity a decentralist manifesto that humanity is already building systems and infrastructure that will transform and replace society's current mediating structures and centers of power. He explores a post-political decentralized world where humanity will reorganize to collaborate and compete with AI, operate within networks of superior collective civilization intelligence, and rediscover our humanity and embrace values for a better human-to-human -human connected world. He envisaged that such a decentralized world will enable us to create global prosperity, transcend politics, and steer clear of an AI or robot apocalypse. Max's Social Evolution website provides more details on the social evolution organization that is dedicated to liberate people and solve social problems through innovation and claims that old mediating structures will soon be obsolete. Smart technology will enable new forms of social organization, the need to prepare for a decentralized world and the fast tracking of self-organizing mutual assistance. Max argues that politics in its current form is about to end and has outlived its usefulness. He thinks we can do better than the current representative democracy, where we outsource our sense of civic responsibility to entrusted politicians. According to him, society's mediating structures that were pillars of our civilization, such as the media, the banks, and the education systems, are already showing fractures, weaknesses, and limitations. In parallel to the technology singularity, we are moving towards a social singularity, where humanity is rapidly reorganizing itself using new technology-driven social structures and approaches that will catapult us into the future without some of these old pillars. Similarly to how politics has outlived its usefulness, Max sees a parallel track where humanity is getting better through recreating the structures of combining, collaborating and connecting with one another in new ways. Besides that automation and AI will allow us to rediscover our humanity, he is optimistic and believes that our collective civilization intelligence will be superior and that we would not get into mass displacement and existential scenarios. Instead, whole new industries are envisioned as capital and labor migrates away from the activities and tasks that AI, robots and automation will be covering to more deeply human enterprises and activities such as art, community-based engagements and caregiving that incorporate our elders and children more closely into our lives again. With AI not currently able to feel, at least not yet, and assisting us in rediscovering our humanity, we can exploit our capabilities as integrated beings that can think and feel to create many human-centric integrated industries. 
We will also construct our social reality with programmable incentives and create new social realities through technologies, rules and tools. Max envisages novel forms of collective intelligence, cooperation and collaboration that will create new social operating systems that operate in the cloud that could already utilize decentralized technologies such as blockchain and holochain. He reckons that the current way of governance, which is outsourcing our cares and responsibilities for each other, will be replaced by governance systems that break up centralized centers of power, make use of insourcing, and are polycentric and polyarchic in nature. Polycentric governance implies a move towards power being localized and governance more participatory and collaborative, where we work with our neighbors in common purpose. Polyarchic describes a government form in which power is invested in multiple people and also implies that we can choose the rules by which we are governed. Max advocates for decentralized social structures that have polycentric and polyarchic elements and driven by our cloud-based social operating systems with legal code that we can choose rather than being imposed on us as with the current status quo. He imagines that from these new social operating systems, with embedded new lattice works of law, new values of a post-political age will emerge. We shape our tools, and then our tools shape us. Similarly, we shape our rules, and our rules shape us. As a result, what emerges from better institutions, rules, and technological lattice works, and psychosocial development of the social singularity, is better people with better values that are more loving, visionary, tolerant, and pluralistic. Whereas well-being have subjective, social, and psychological dimensions, as well as health-related behaviors, Psychological well-being touches more on virtue and the realization of a person's potential as also derived from Aristotle's view of the highest human good. Some virtues that are held across time, culture or viewpoint include wisdom and knowledge, courage, justice, humanity, temperance and transcendence. Some key aspects of psychological wellness include autonomy in thought and action, self-acceptance, environmental mastery, personal growth, positive relations, and purpose in life and pursuit of meaningful goals. From a cross-cultural perspective, autonomy is seen as a basic universal value of human existence in both Western individualist and Eastern collectivist societies. Well-being includes both feel-good hedonia and feel-purpose eudaimonia aspects where hedonia focus more on externally derived happiness, enjoyment, pleasure, satisfaction, and the absence of distress and negative effect, and eudaimonia is more focused on internally derived happiness, meaning, authenticity, excellence, personal growth, and living life in a full and satisfying way. To make it even more explicit, hedonia is more associated with physical and emotional needs, what feels good, desire, ease, now, rights, pleasure, and self-care, whereas eudaimonia is associated with cognitive values and ideals, what feels right, care, giving, long-term, effort, elevation, responsibilities, and cultivating. Hedonia and eudaimonia can be seen as separate but connected pathways to happiness, where a fulfilled life has both strong feel-good hedonia and feel-purpose eudaimonia components. In this respect, a sweet life has more feeling good and less feeling purpose components, 
A dry life, more feeling purpose and less feeling good. And a void life, less from both. University of Ottawa researcher Veronica Utah explains the differences between eudonia and eudaimonia from an orientation, why you do things, behavior, what you do, experience, what you feel, and functioning, what you're good at, perspective. She indicates that orientations and behaviors reflect the choices a person makes, whereas experiences and functioning are typically the results of those choices. Eudaimonia is distinct from hedonia from an orientation's perspective, but there are also differences on a behavior and experiences level. Elysia Yotskovsky, co-founder and research fellow at the Machine Intelligence Research Institute and popularizer of the friendly AI concept, has introduced fun theory, which is the field of knowledge that helps us to imagine utopias where anyone would actually want to live, and addresses questions such as, how much fun is there in the universe? Are we having fun yet? Could we be having more fun? And will we ever run out of fun? Fun theory is built on top of the naturalistic meta-ethics that advocates that human life will be empty if we cannot enjoy simply good things like happiness, truth, and sentient life. Elysier makes the point that people would not be inspired to work on creating an utopian world if nobody puts proper effort into imagining a better future world where people are excited to live in. Although much progress has been made, our present world still has many shortcomings with respect to eudaimonic aspects, such as freedom, self-reliance, and personal responsibility, as well as not having an optimized design that holistically drives towards beneficial, well-meaning, and altruistic outcomes. Fun theory aims to articulate the characteristics of such a more benevolent design that we should strive for and addresses approaches from religious theodicy that attempts to justify why evil is permitted and religion's supposedly flawless afterlife. Elysier also mentions that fun theory makes it clear that there are a variety of aspects that contribute to a life worth living and that eudaimonia is more complex than we might think. He also shows how fun theory ties in with the complexity of value thesis that says that human values and preferences cannot be summarized by a few simple rules and therefore have high Kolmogorov complexity. He also defines fragility of value as a thesis that articulates that even missing a small percentage of the rules that ascribe human values and preferences can result in completely undesirable outcomes. This is also the reason why we need to be more accurate with the goal systems that we choose to implement for our strong AI systems. Elysia refers to these strong AI systems as friendly AI that produces advantageous outcomes rather than damaging ones. Elysia also shares what he calls 31 laws of fun as a summary of his fun theory sequence that aims to give pointers to futurists that want to color in an utopian world that people would be excited to live in. Some of these key points include describing a typical day, do not include things that are not fun to do, include high quality challenges, include novelty, pace the tempo of getting smarter to keep everything in balance. People should have full sensory experience that engages the brain and body. People should do exciting things. People's lives should continuously improve. There should be events or things that pleasantly surprise people. People should be doing interesting things for themselves using their own capabilities and resources.
People should become more formidable and stronger over time. People should be emotionally involved with long-term consequences as a part of a life story. People should be free to optimize their lives and create their own destinies. People should not be dominated in their everyday life by exceedingly superior entities. Group size and dynamics should incorporate Dunbar's number, which is the suggested cognitive limit to the number of people with whom one can maintain stable social relationships. Give people stronger local influence and control and not have people to compete with everyone else globally. Don't give people too many options that could also include potentially harmful ones or ones that are very tempting but dangerous. It should also not be easy to exercise dangerous options. Let people discover truths for themselves. Preferably do not simplify people's lives by reducing their interaction with other people as that reduces the complexity of their human existence. Nudge people to make the problem solvable as opposed to solving the problems at once. Prioritize changes to the environment ahead of changes to minds and favor small cognitive changes to bigger ones. The world should have abundant joy and pleasure in relation to sadness and pain, unlike the current world where there is an unbalance between pain and pleasure and pain could be endless and long-lasting. The penalties for errors should also be more proportional. It should not try avoid commotion or spontaneous cheerfulness. It can introduce situations or environments that could initially seem scary, disorganized, uncomfortable or surprising. It does not need to go along with your existing ideals for the world, but possibly even challenge you to change those ideals. If there is any existential anxiety that you struggle to overcome, that at least present a problem that needs to be focused on to get resolved. As a better world will likely have less people that needs help, the focus can shift to many other higher purpose activities. And people that are not in immediate danger can still have compelling and interesting lives. Do you want to live in a world with these types of characteristics? What other characteristics would you like to see? Are there any of these laws of fun that do not resonate with you?